Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Let's begin this morning with a thought experiment. How many of you here have a Nana? Okay, you have a, a grandmother, you call her Nana. Or maybe you call her Oma, Nona. Even if you don't have a Nana, maybe there's some sweet, vulnerable person in your life that you love you know, you care a great deal about them. And I want you to imagine this person is about to move to Hamilton. Now, this person is on a fixed income. They need your support. They don't drive. They use a mobility scooter. What is, what's something that you would want to warn your Nana about? Like you'd want to say, hey, heads up, Nana, before you move here, because I love you, I need to tell you something, because if I don't, you're going to have a hard time when you get here. Now, can, can you think of something? Like, what comes to mind? Maybe it's street racers after dark. Maybe it's unshoveled sidewalks in the winter. Maybe it's the widespread issue of unaffordable housing where absolutely no one can afford to buy a home here. Maybe it's drug crime or the forced evictions where landlords are jacking up their prices and they're saying that they're having a you know doing a renovation but really what they're trying to do is just get rid of the low-income tenants in their homes so we, we've called that renovations maybe the problem you'd want to warn your nana about is payday loans or the sewage leak in coots paradise or the dangerous coating on the red hill valley parkway or on and on and on now imagine nana didn't have you to warn her about these things. Imagine she had no one to warn her, no family in town, no neighbors, no community. And so when Nana gets here, she struggles and she feels completely overwhelmed. Now, if you didn't know her, you might respond to somebody in your Nana's, in this Nana's situation in lots of different ways. You might respond with compassion or empathy or charity or, or, or kindness and all kinds of valid responses to a situation like this. And I just wonder, what about anger? Like, is there a place for anger for a, over, a, over a situation like the situation your Nana finds herself in? Now, you know, about anger, it seems to me that the, the way we feel toward anger, our attitude toward anger, depends a lot on what kind of a home we grew up in. Because on the one hand, some of us grew up in homes where we saw a lot of anger. We heard a lot of raised voices. There was even, like, there was fights and violence. And uh, for some of us, rage kind of, it comes out naturally. It just, it, it comes out of us very easily. On the other hand, some of us grew up in homes where we learned that Christians don't get angry. Anger is a sin. Anger is never right. And that's what we learned. And that's not better. Now, most of us have been in Hamilton a while. And I wonder, do these things that we've been talking about, these issues, do they make you angry? Like, could you imagine getting angry over some of these things? In fact, could you imagine getting so angry that you would quit your job, change vocations, you'd travel throughout the city and the area in order to warn the powerful, in order to warn the leaders and the government, in order to tell people responsible to smarten up? Like, how bad would things have to get? Well, that's where the book of Amos comes from. This morning we begin a series. It's going to take us through Advent. It's called No Justice, No Peace. Amos speaks to the city. 
Now, Amos is one of the minor prophets in Scripture, but he's a, he's a big deal. This book is really important. Amos saw all this uh, injustice around him, all this evil and corruption around him, and he couldn't stay silent. He, he had to get people talking about the stuff that nobody wanted to talk about. For today, the goal is to introduce Amos, to kind of orient us to what to expect in the book of Amos. I really think that for, for these studies to land on us as they should, there's a few things for us to be prepared for, a few things for us to like understand, and also some themes to pay attention for. So that's what we're doing today. So let's begin with a bit about the context of Amos. First of all, who is this guy? Who is Amos? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 1, he's introduced to us as a shepherd of Tekoa. A shepherd, okay? So later on, he's going to say, in verse, chapter 7, he's going to say, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So who is Amos? Amos is a like a good old blue-collar guy who reached the limit of what he could tolerate. And then God got a hold of him. And so now he's going to be God's mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. Second question, where was Amos? Where, where was he? Well, Amos is from the, the southern kingdom in a town called Tekoa. It seems to me this north-south stuff can be kind of confusing sometimes. So let me help us. Uh, in, in the time of Amos, God's people live in one of two kingdoms. Okay? Now, God never wanted Israel to have a king but he gave in and he allowed it. And so he first gave them King Saul. And then there was King David. And then there was King Solomon. And then King Solomon's two sons after him, they fought over who got to be the rightful king. And their fight, their dispute, turned into uh, this huge split that divided the kingdom into two parts. There was Judah in the south, and there was Israel in the north. Now, as Amos as we read the book of Amos, we're going to see that his message is mainly to Israel, but he's got some things to say to Judah. In fact, he's got some things to say to almost everybody. Like he's going to announce some warnings and some judgment on all these powerful Gentile cities, nations around him, places like Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. It's like a, like a circle of judgment around the people of God. And after naming those cities and states, that's when he's going to shift his focus onto Israel and Judah. And so here, just helpful to understand that Amos is, it's like he's an equal opportunity prophet. Okay? Like whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you need to repent and go to God. Now, the third question is, when was Amos? We've talked about who he is. We talked about where he shared his message. The third question is, when did this happen? The text tells us that it's two years before the earthquake. We don't know what earthquake he's referring to, but he also says that it's during the reign of Uzziah, who is king of Judah, and Jeroboam, who was king in Israel. In fact, it's Jeroboam II. Now, on a timeline of, of Old Testament history, we are, here we are, just on, here's a timeline. I think these are really helpful tools, but on the timeline, we're, we're just after the split of God's people into the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. And this is about 200 years after David. And at this point, both the nations are doing great. 
The kings have made a lot of great deals. They've been successful in war and in trade. And so it's a great time. And both Israel and Judah, they're like, they're living their best lives. They've got wealth and slaves and there's construction contracts and there's in massive industry and there's farming. And so God's people are doing great, but they won't share it with anybody else. In fact, they won't share it with the poor. And in just a few decades from now, Israel and, and Judah later, but Israel is going to be attacked and taken into exile. Okay. And in fact, as we go along, Amos is going to see why that had to happen. So there are a few thoughts about Amos's context that it's, it's just going to, those are going to help us as we move along. There are also some, some key themes, kind of key questions that come up over and over throughout the book. Okay. So let me introduce these. There's really three of them. One is cities. The second is guilt. And the third is wrath. So first, let's begin with cities. Now, these days, you and I can move pretty freely and easily between cities. Cities are close together. Some people even live in one city and they work in another. We elect our our leaders of our cities and the, the laws are pretty much the same from one city to another. Now, it hasn't always been that way. Because in ancient times, a city is like this walled off city-state in the middle of nowhere. Here's a picture of one. Okay, and your, your city is about a day's journey away from the nearest town. And most of the people who live in the city with you, they're born and they're going to die in the same city. And their leaders are not elected. Okay, like in a Hebrew town, they're probably going to have a council of elders who help make decisions and make judgments about what's going on in the city. But most of the Gentile cities have no such leadership and they're ruled by a powerful warlord or chieftain or magistrate. And you might think of this person like the Godfather, okay? Like in the Godfather movies, and he's like a mafia boss. So on paper, the magistrate works for the king, but for the most part, he's actually free to do what he wants. And this guy, the mayor, the, the, war, the war lord, the chieftain, his job is to protect the people and to rule over the people. And in exchange, you pay him. In fact, you pay him or you leave. And if you can't afford to pay him, you might give him a son who he can use in his army, or you might give him a daughter who he might employ in his harem. And so this warlord, this chieftain is a, is a really rich, powerful person. He's very comfortable and he's very easy to bribe. And by the way, if you happen to be poor, if you happen to be childless, or if you need help, you are totally at the mercy of the chieftain because you're a burden. And any minute, he might sell you as a slave. And so one of the themes that we run into in the book of Amos is the theme of the city. Like, what is a city? What is it supposed to look like for people to live together in a city? Does God really care about what happens in a city. Does he see? Does he care? Well, another theme that we're going to find in the book of Amos is the difference between guilt then and guilt now. Now, in 2022 in North America, we have a very individualistic culture, don't we? Like, we don't feel responsible for other people's mistakes, okay? Like, we would say it's unfair to be expected to pay for a crime that we didn't personally commit, Now, 
you may remember just this past Friday, it was the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So I don't know if you know this, but Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission is actually having a really hard time getting through to our leaders and getting it to really, getting people on the ground to really care about reconciliation. And you know why? It's because the only way that these crimes against Indigenous peoples can be made right is if we pay for it in Canada. If we, the people who are alive today, if we absorb the cost, we can make it right. And a lot of folks alive today think that that's not fair. That's not our job. Now, if you want us to wear an orange t-shirt, sure, we can do that. But gosh, these things happened 200 years ago. And so as a culture, we've said, we didn't do it. We weren't there and we shouldn't be held responsible to fix it. Well, the prophets who spoke for God in the Old Testament, they have a very different approach to guilt and responsibility. These things are shared. Justice is shared. The responsibility and the culpability, the guilt is shared. These things are are communal. They're not just individualistic, okay? Like if your city practices idolatry and you benefit from it, you are guilty. Whether or not you personally went to the temple or not, like that's just part of something to be prepared for in the book of Amos. If you're a working class person, just kind of minding your own business in your city while your mayor, your chieftain, takes slaves or steals babies from their moms or sends the poor out into the wilderness to die, you are partly responsible. You have a share of the guilt, even, if, even though you didn't personally do it. And and so one of the things that we're going to see a lot of in Amos is this idea of communal guilt and communal justice. Because the book of Amos asks, whose job is it to speak up for the poor? Like, who's actually responsible? In a system where, you know, corrupt leaders can, can take advantage of others totally unchallenged, who should say something? Whose job is it? Well, one last theme for us to prepare for. It's kind of a big one. It's the theme of God's wrath in the book of Amos. God's wrath. Now, we, 21st century, we Westerners, we have a really hard time with the concept of a God who gets angry, of a God who punishes evil. Uh, We don't want to think that our God would ever judge or cause pain or cause suffering. We don't want to. Now, that's a pretty recent shift. Like for most of the ancient world, in lots of places in the world, the judgment of the gods was pretty arbitrary, like pretty unpredictable, hard to connect the judgment and the wrath of the gods to events or choices that people had made. So if you lose your harvest, or suppose you're like one of your children dies, or suppose your city is invaded, you're like, well, that's just the will of the gods. And you might decide to go to the temple and maybe buy off your God with a a sacrifice or something like that. But there's really no way of knowing what you did to make the gods so angry or if if, if it's just the gods doing whatever they please. But the God of Israel is different. God, our God is different. In, In fact, in the book of Exodus, he appears to Moses. You might remember this story because it's when Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make my glory pass before you, but you're not going to be able to look on it. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock 
and my glory will pass before you. So in that passage, in, this is Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And this became sort of like the creed of Israel. Okay, the, the, the idea that God is compassionate and he is a gracious God and he is slow to anger and abounding in love. He's slow to anger, but he does get angry. In fact, this God reserves the right to punish evildoers and he will. He will see that they are punished fully. Now, just as an aside, this is not my favorite thing to talk about. I don't love talking about God's wrath and God's anger. In fact, I don't think I've ever done that in a sermon in Benediction Church. I used to talk about God's wrath all the time. I used to talk about God's wrath all the time. What I've come to realize is that it's actually, it seems to me anyway, I just don't think it's usually necessary to talk about God's wrath. But sometimes it is, like in the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, it's necessary because this is a theme that's going to come up quite a bit. Amos warns the nations about God's judgment and he says hard things like this in chapter 2. He says, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. That's God talking. In chapter 7, God says, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. That's God talking. In chapter 9, he says, Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Again, that's God speaking. That's the God that we pray to in the Lord's Prayer. That's the God that Jesus called Abba. If we don't believe in a God who is capable of wrath, and judgment. We don't believe in the God of Amos. So we need to, to pause here. I, I think we this is a, an important conversation for us to have. I want to offer some help. What I want to do is, is, is offer three lenses through which to view God's wrath. That as we look at God's wrath in the scripture, we need to look at it through, through one of three lenses. One lens is justice, another is God's love, and the third is the cross. So let's talk about each of these. First of all, let's talk about God's wrath as proof of his justice. It's proof of his justice. Let's be honest. God's wrath is a problem. Now, I don't know if you ever noticed this or if you ever thought about it before. I don't know if this ever struck you as a problem. But when we get to the New Testament, Jesus teaches his disciples, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Like, forgive them. Don't take revenge. And I've sometimes wondered, how come we're supposed to love and forgive our enemies if God won't? Like, have you ever wondered that? Have you ever, has, has that ever struck you as a bit of a problem? Well, it is. And it's okay to say that. It's a problem. And, but there is an answer. There's an answer, and it comes down to justice. Like, when sinner one sins against sinner two, who him, himself is 
guilty of sin. Sinner two really ought to show mercy to sinner one because sinner two knows that he's really just as guilty, even though in this case he's not the one that sinned. Like sinner two is just as in need of forgiveness. He really should give sinner one a, a, a pass. He really should love him and show mercy and forgive him. That's how it is when one sinner sins against another sinner. But when a sinner sins against God, that's a very different situation, isn't it? And the fact is that all day, everywhere, people who are made in God's image reject him. And we do stupid, selfish, cruel things that are wicked, and we worship created things instead of our creator. And anger is exactly how a holy God should feel over that. That's exactly how a holy, righteous God should should respond and how he should feel. If not for God's anger, we wouldn't know if he's actually a just and righteous God or if it's just talk. If not for God's anger, we would have no way of really knowing right from wrong. Because it's like, well, if if he's not willing to do anything about it, how, how bad can it really be? But instead... God's judgment on evil shows us that he is a God of justice. It shows us how committed he is to justice. And so the first lens we want to view God's wrath through is the lens of justice. The second lens for looking at God's wrath is the lens of his love. It's the lens of God's love. God's anger isn't like our anger, if you know this or not. But his his anger is different from ours. Now, you and I, we can get angry over all kinds of things that we really shouldn't get that angry about. Like, I can get angry when I spill food on my shirt, when I, when I forget where I put my coffee, when I lose my keys, when my computer isn't working, on, on and on and on. If I'm honest, I can actually get way angrier over stuff like this super angry. I can get so much more angry over stuff like this than actual injustice or actual evil. Can you relate to that at all? And because that's true, because these are the things that make me most angry, I accept my anger. You know, I, I, it's valid. I accept my anger, but I don't trust my anger. I don't trust it to tell me what matters most. My anger isn't uh, reliable. Okay, my anger is almost always mixed with like pride and stress and fear and power and revenge. But that's not how God's anger works. God's anger has no sin mixed in. God's judgment is always in proportion to what God loves. Like the degree and the amount of God's anger is always in proportion to the amount uh, of God's love and the, the worth of the thing that God loves. You might say it this way. You might say that God's anger is the other side of God's love. Like when we see God pouring out his wrath or when we see God judging uh, a situation, that should make us think, if this is how awful God's judgment is, then how great is his love? Like if this is how horrible God's wrath is, how great must be his love that this is how he he protects what he loves. And this is how God punishes the evil that is done to what he loves. And God, in his wrath, God will burn away every wedge between us. God will destroy anything that keeps us from seeing his glory. 
God's wrath is this like purifying fire that's going to consume every idol, every evil thing, and every good thing that tries to get in the way of our relationship with God. And it's going to be consumed with God's purifying fire in his wrath so that there is nothing left for us to cling to but him. That's what God's wrath is. There is nothing that God wouldn't destroy for the good of what he loves. There's nothing he wouldn't destroy for the good of what he loves, including himself. Including himself. In fact, that brings us to the third lens for looking at God's wrath. It's the cross. It's the cross. Like at the cross, God's wrath means our salvation. Listen, if God's wrath offends us here in Amos, what are we going to do when we get to the cross? Like, I, I get it if, as we read the book of Amos, we see these passages about judgment and God's anger, and these make us uncomfortable. It's, it's a problem. But isn't the cross an even bigger problem? Isn't the cross an even bigger problem than the wrath of God in Amos? Listen, in Amos, God's judgment looks like earthquakes and fires and invasions and exile, and it's awful for sure. But just step back a minute and think about what happened on the cross. Now, Christianity says that in Jesus, God personally came to earth. And he only ever deserved worship and love and praise. This person never sinned. He was always perfectly innocent. He never failed to glorify God. He never failed to keep God's law. And he taught the way of the kingdom he blessed, he healed people, and evil men had him arrested and tortured and humiliated and crucified. And he let it happen. Like apparently that was the plan. The Apostle Paul explains it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, the curse is God's anger. The curse is God's wrathful response to sin. And this passage says, Jesus became that. He became the curse. So there he is, the curse, hanging on the cross as our substitute, and he dies. God's wrath is on him, and he dies. And when he dies, God's wrath dies. God's wrath against us, it's, it's like it's extinguished. The same way you kind of, you know, you might take a, a torch and drop it into a bucket of water and it fizzles and, and hisses and steams. And, it's, and the, the anger and the judgment and the wrath is extinguished. And Jesus says it is finished. And we're forgiven. Jesus has saved us from God's wrath. How did he do that? By absorbing the wrath. Jesus saves us from judgment by being judged. Now, can you imagine anything more offensive than that? Like, what could be more unjust than that? How can that be how we are saved? And yet, yet it is. So, like, I don't blame anybody for reacting to God's judgment in the Bible. And it's a theme that we're going to see a lot of in the next few weeks. But... The most disturbing display of God's judgment, the most troubling display of God's 
wrath has always been the cross. It's always been the cross. So I get it. If God's wrath is uncomfortable, it's a problem. But if we're offended by God's wrath when it is poured out on evildoers in a city, but we're not offended by God's wrath when it's against an innocent, sinless Savior, that's the problem. That's the problem. In fact, that says, if I may say, that says something about us. The wrath of God isn't arbitrary. Okay, the wrath of God proves his justice, it proves what he loves, and the wrath of God is our salvation at the cross. And I just think that if we can hold on to that, it, it might actually help us uh, get angry over the right things. Things like abuse to children, things like bullying or violence against women or exploiting the poor or racism or corruption of our leaders or destruction of the earth or on and on and on. All of it is right here in the book of Amos. Now come back with me to Amos as we close. We've called this study, No Justice, No Peace. Amos speaks to the city. I don't know if you're familiar with that language of no justice, no peace, but no justice, no peace. It's this old protest slogan. People would, would chant this as they would march for justice in their cities. The idea is that wherever there is peace, it's because the people there worked for justice together. And wherever the people can count on justice, that's a place where there will be peace, okay? Justice and peace go together, okay? That's kind of the, the, the middle shelf meaning of no justice, no peace. But there is another meaning. No justice, no peace has a deeper meaning. Like in another sense, it's actually a threat. It's kind of a warning. Do you get that? Like, in this sense, no justice, no peace means if you don't act with justice, don't expect peace. If you don't act with justice, don't expect to live out your days in comfort. Don't expect us to give you peace. If you won't provide us with justice, you can expect judgment. You d should not expect us to make it easy for you. There will be no peace. So that's the other meaning of no justice, no peace. And, and, and it's, it's the cry of those who have been harmed and abused and ignored. And all throughout the book of Amos, we're going to see that no justice, no peace, that's actually the cry of God's own heart. Like that's how God feels. And over and over, he's going to confront these cities in the ancient world for some of the very same things that are going on in Hamilton in 2022, and God's message to them and to us is, will you not work for justice? Then you will have no peace. If you will not strive to provide justice, then you can't have peace. I won't let you. In fact, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to do so that there is justice once more. And then there will be peace. And I'm really excited about this. I'm excited about this study, man. I, I hope you are too. By the way, I don't expect that when we finish this study of Amos, that we're going to be like out marching in protests or, you know, calling for the overthrow of the government of Hamilton. Not at all. That is not the goal of this study. But maybe, maybe we come through this study and it changes how we relate to the city. Like maybe we'll learn to see some things we didn't see. Maybe we'll love some things we didn't love before. Maybe he'll change some hearts that have grown cold or indifferent towards the city. That's certainly what I'm, I'm praying for. And I'm, I'm praying that it would begin with me. Because, like, who knows? 
Who knows? Who, who can imagine what God could do through a few people who feel for their city the way that God does, right? Who could imagine that? What, what if we could celebrate justice and get angry at the right things the way that God does? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.